morning. My name is Ardalis Green. Welcome to Grace. We're glad you're here. Uh, the shift we're making as a church is becoming more missional. So we've got a series we've been doing called We Mission. <clears throat> the truth is, the largest growing demographic in America today concerning church affiliation are those with no affiliation, the so-called nuns. They won't come to church if we have a cool worship team. And one of the reasons I love worship so much is it reminds us of who God is, that God is constant, that God is always good, that God is sovereignly ruling over our lives, that not for a moment will he ever forsake us. So back to the nuns. So they won't come because we have cool worship or we have a cool guitarist or we do a series on healthy relationships. They aren't coming to Easter. They aren't coming to Christmas Eve. They perceive that Christians largely are rude, <laughs> exclusive, homophobic, bigoted, racist, hypocritical, holier than thou. Sorry to tell you that, but that's the opinion that many of the nuns have towards us. So the question is, if they're not coming to us, how are we going to reach them? How are we going to build relationships with people drawing them to the person of Jesus Christ. We talked last week about service being part of the answer. We said that servanthood has two big components to it, two big decisions. One is choosing to serve. Now, when we're talking about a person serving in the military, right, they would say, well, I served four years in the Marines, or I served nine years in the Navy, or I served 21 years in the Army. They made a deliberate choice to serve. This week, from our church, people went on Thursday down to the rescue mission in a very deliberate choice to serve. Serving the least served, right? So in service, often there are the promptings of the Holy Spirit. God will prompt you in His Spirit to be a servant to somebody somewhere. And then there is putting it on your calendar, that this is something I want to do. This is important enough to me that I've scheduled it. But there's a higher calling than simply choosing to serve, and that is to step into the identity of being a servant. When a person becomes a disciple of Jesus Christ, they look at the example and teachings of Jesus and say, he was a servant, and he's called me to servanthood. So if I'm part of an organization, if I'm the leader... I'm looking at the well-being of my team, right? I'm trying to empower and equip my team to be effective. And if I am on a team, what I really want to be is about contributing to that team. Right? So the servant's always asking the question, you know, how can I serve? How can I be involved in service? So we think about service on three different levels. We think about it on an individual level. We think about it on a community level, maybe in our groups, how can we serve the community? And then we think about it as a church. There was an incident this week, or a couple weeks ago, recently in the Ballinger Creek area. A pastor friend of mine, his name is Darren Gerald, pastor of Strong Tower, uh, saw a car in his neighborhood that had been spray-painted with graffiti using the N-word. A hate crime, a very offensive thing. And it's really not okay to damage someone's property with racial epithets on their car. So a group I'm part of, it's called the Church of the City. There's several pastors, and we meet on Wednesdays, and we pray together. And um, 
So we began asking the question, you know, on three levels. What do we need to know? What do we need to feel? And then what do we need to do about this, right? Well, we know that God hates discrimination. Right? And we felt together outrage and offense at this. But it seemed to us very clear that God was calling us to an action. So the first action we took was we met with a guy whose car was damaged, hearing his story, hearing his pain, identifying with him. The second action we took was to pay for the graffiti to be removed from his car and repaint the car. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So on Wednesday afternoon, uh, a reporter came from the Frederick News Post to be with our group, and she was asking me, she said, what's your perspective on what happened? And I took her through the story of Joseph and what happened with his brothers. And I said, you know, what Joseph said was, man meant this for evil, but God meant it for good, to draw us together, to show us how we can cooperate and collaborate, how we can serve. The owner of the car currently is asking about how he and his girlfriend can get into one of our churches. Now, talking about choosing to be a servant, <clears throat> the person doing the work is the proprietor of the Second Chances Garage. Now, routinely, what he's doing is he's taking these cars that have been donated to the ministry, he's fixing them up and giving them to single moms, to the poor. Well, he made a decision to be a servant. And somewhere, and he, he discovered in the process, this person not only put graffiti on the car, but put sand in the gas tank. So currently what he's doing is taking off the gas tank and purifying the car. But it's beautiful to me to see the body of Christ serving in a very negative situation. One of the values we have in our church here, you'll see in your notes, is that we value service. Here's one of the core values of our church. We get up out of our seats, we roll up our sleeves, we get our hands dirty, right? That's what servants do. They get their hands dirty. Serving anyone, anytime, anywhere, all right? We're about servanthood. We're looking for opportunities to serve the body, to serve beyond the body, beyond the four walls of the church. Many of you here are teachers, and you've been serving all year long. Thank you for your service. Service. I hear tomorrow is Liberation Day. Friday was the end of school for students. Tomorrow you're released. You have served your students well. You have loved well. Thank you. We also value here as a church excellence. Another one of our core values is excellence. Striving to honor God by being excellent in everything we do. Giving attention to details. Working always to improve and welcoming feedback. Now we may not be excellent at everything today, but we will be better tomorrow than we are today because we're going to give it our best shot in the power of the Spirit, and we're working to improve, and we're open to making it better. But here's the problem, okay? I try to set this up. Here's the problem. When we choose to serve, one of the problems with serving is exhaustion, weariness, especially if we serve without taking a break or we serve without boundaries. See, we're striving to do the highest thing, the excellent thing. We're striving also to serve, but it can create a problem called weariness. A student who's become weary with their studies, 
a mom that's become weary taking care of her children, a volunteer weary in their service not having really good boundaries, right? So weariness, a problem. So Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9 says these words, let us not then become weary in doing good. It's a beautiful thing when you desire to do something good. Do something good for someone else, right? Do something good for your family. Do something good for your community. But it's possible in doing good that we can become weary. Students and teachers both get weary this time of year, right? What I hear from students is, uh, I am so done with school, right? I am so ready to be out of here. Let us not become weary in doing good, because doing good can become wearisome. For at the proper time, now here comes the promise, Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Let us, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest. If we sow the seed and water the seed, the universal principle is that that which we sow, we also will reap. If we sow a little, we'll reap a little. If we sow a lot, we'll reap a lot. If you sow, you will reap. It won't happen immediately. You don't sow today and reap tomorrow, right? But the farmer's going to reap in due time. The little tomatoes that I planted outside of my house, these little cherry tomatoes, they just began to blossom. They were planted about a month ago, all right? It's going to take them a little while before there is a harvest. Now, there's one blossom, so I'm not expecting a great harvest for my cherry tomatoes. But something's going to happen, right, good, if we continually do good. That's the promise. So don't give up. Don't become weary. So let's have the next screen. I'm going to pull up Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Galatians 6, verse 9. This is about listening. Do we have the verse? Oh, you don't have the verse up. Okay. So, here's how the verse goes. You're going to need a Bible for this part. Galatians 1, chapter 6, verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Paul is calling the church to be steadfast. There is a reward if we do not become weary, if we do not, come, do not give up. Because in all of our sowing, there also is a harvest. The farmer plants a seed, and the seed seems small and insignificant. The seed is buried in the dirt. Let's say the seed is just one kernel of corn. The farmer is not hoping for a one-to-one return on his kernel of corn. He's hoping that kernel of corn is going to produce some corn stalks, and corn stalks going to produce three kernels of corn, and on those kernels of, those ears of corn will be 300 kernels of corn. Did I say that right? What he's hoping is that one seed will produce 900 kernels of corn. He's hoping there's going to be a harvest, but here's what it's saying. Don't become weary in doing good, right? Don't give up in doing good, because there's going to be a harvest. So look for opportunities, he's saying, to serve. What is this well doing, doing good? Well, these are the kinds of everyday random acts of kindness that you show to people. The little courtesies you extend to people. The kind-hearted parenting or grandparenting you do. 
the projects you engage in in work, you're doing good, right? You think about it like a nurse, a doctor, alleviating suffering, a teacher, helping their students to learn um, subjects, a mom taking care of her little ones. You know, when I think about Rhonda, who passed in the presence of the Lord just a few weeks ago, I think about her enormous kindness of her doing good, doing good as a mom, doing good as a wife, doing good as a nurse, doing good as a mentor to youth. Are you the kind of person I'm describing? Are you continually trying to do good? Is your greatest joy to see good done in our world? Do you do it joyfully? Do you do it steadfastly? So it comes time now for me to draw you a picture. I know one of the highlights of your life is when I draw. <laughs> so here we go again into Pastor R's drawing. I'd like to draw a picture of your life. This is your life. You say, it doesn't look like my life. This is a picture of life management, okay? How you manage your life. Your life is like a bucket, and your life has energy in your life, right? Your bucket is either full, or it's empty, or it's somewhere in between. Somewhere on the spectrum today, your life is, right? I, I like to, myself, operate from a full bucket. Because when my bucket is full, out of me overflows good things, right? So out of this full bucket comes service, ministry to others, caring about the well-being of others, lifting up someone who's down, right? Encouraging somebody. So in other words, we want to stay full, right? So the question is, you know, how do we get to this full bucket? Well, for me personally, one of the things I do, the first thing I do in the morning is I have a chair. And God and I meet in a chair. And God speaks to me in that place of my chair. I just get set the alarm early. I get up and God meets with me. And I'm asking the question, God, what are you saying? What are you saying to me? What are you saying to me that others need to hear? So a lot of the sermons I give you come out of my chair time with God. God speaks into my life, and it begins to overflow. Right? Another thing that fills up my tank, so to speak, is on, on Mondays, I go for bike rides out in the country. I love to ride, you know, and feel the wind in my face, the sunshine kissing my face. Another thing that fills up my tank is my grandchildren. They call me Pop. And I'll see two of them this afternoon. I'll see little William and James. So we'll be down in D.C. this afternoon with grandchildren. Now that's how I get a full tank. All right, so I operate, I try to operate as much as I can with a full tank. But there's times when my life is more like a half a tank. The tank is half full, right? There's opportunities for me to serve, but there's not much steam in the pipes, right? There's not much energy flowing through me. I say, well, maybe not, right? Now, what I've noticed is my wife Debbie's car, when it's on half full, it's not really half full. It's really much lower than half full. 
It's more like three-quarters empty when it's showing half full. So when you're kind of gauging yourself and knowing where you are with your energy level, you may think you're half full, but you're kind of depleted, right? You're becoming exhausted. And then the state you don't want to be in is empty, where you've sort of run out, where you're burnout, where you're exhausted, where there's nothing left. And things will come into your life that will take away your energy, like a loss, like a divorce, like losing a job, an illness, a prolonged illness, where you find yourself running on empty. Now, I'm ashamed to admit this, but there's been many times in my life where I've been absolutely empty. I remember one time I was running on empty. I was in a very depressed state, and I'd gone over to Baltimore, which can be depressing. <laughs> and I was uh, down in the inner city of Baltimore, and uh, I was riding around with my son, Chris, who was in school. And there in front of me was a man with no legs. And he was kind of just moving very slowly. Actually, he's trying to you know, beg money, but he was moving very slowly across the street. And I said to him, I said to Chris, I said, look how slowly this guy is moving. Can you believe this? How slowly this guy is moving. A disabled man. And Chris said, Dad, he's having a harder day than you are. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, what have I become <laughs> that I would judge this disabled man? Well, what's happened there was I was empty, you see. There was nothing left in the tank. I had become depleted and exhausted. So as you think about yourself and your own level of energy, where are you? You see, what you need when you're depleted is you need something flowing into the tank. Let's call these streams of refreshment. You need to refresh your soul when your soul is depleted. So I said to you that I get replenished with my time with God, with time on my bike, with time with my grandkids. It's very important how you manage your life because how you manage your life determines how much energy you have. So if you're looking at yourself right now, would you say, Pastor R, my tank is full and it is overflowing. How many would be in that category? One, two, three. <laughs> Not many. How many would say, I'm sort of like at half tank. I know I need some rest, replenishment. I need to, like, some streams flowing into my life. I need to get outside. It's summertime now. Time to get outside, to walk in nature, you know, maybe to paint or listen to music? Or how many would say that I'm just empty? Nobody admits it. Well, the rest of the sermon really is about to the empty one. So if you didn't raise your hand, the rest is for you, okay? You see, when you find yourself empty or depressed, the more depressed you get, you just don't want to be around people. What you find is that when you're really depleted, you find yourself sleeping a lot or watching TV, or playing video games, or drinking. I find myself, when I'm really depleted, watching the Weather Channel. A serious sign of spiritual health in my life is when Pastor R is too long in front of the Weather Channel watching three or four cycles go through. 
I just don't want to be responsible for anything, right? I'm just emotionally shot. I don't really have anything left to give. It's just me and the Weather Channel. All right. So, oh, I've got one more picture I want to draw for you. <laughs> I know you just love my artwork. Here we go. Second picture, streams of replenishment. Okay, you're going to need them. Somewhere you're going to need those streams of replenishment flowing in your life. I don't know what they are for you, but they're most likely around the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God flowing into your life to encourage you. Okay, picture number two. Would you say this is one of the highlights of your life when I draw pictures like this? Yeah, okay. All right. You know, my son Jimmy's taking up art. I really do need to improve as an artist, but here we go. All right, here's the second picture. This is the church, okay? The church. And I'm going to draw another part of the church. This is a diving board, okay? Now, when I say serve, what that means is that you have a spiritual gift, okay? I have a gift. You have a gift. All God's people have a gift. And so at some point, you're going to hear, like, you have a gift, and you need to identify that gift and deploy the gift, right? Put that gift to work. So if you're a leader, you know, to build teams, to move the team somewhere. If you're a servant, you know, how can I serve? So here's the diving board, and here's a person. And we say to them, people like me say, hey, you need to jump into service. So it's a little fearful on the diving board, but here goes the person. They're going to jump now from the diving board into service. And that's awesome. A person now is serving children or serving youth or serving as a shepherd leader. So they're serving somewhere in the church. But there isn't a break, right? There aren't good boundaries. And what happens is they decide that over here are the chairs. And so they come out of the pool and they park themselves on the chair or the lawn chair or the, what do you call this thing? You lay down the lounge chairs, yes. They take a lounge chair. So when I said to you last week, I said, how many of you identify yourselves as servants? And like two people raised their hand. What I thought happened there was you had been serving somewhere, right, in the church, but then you thought, well, I tell you what, I'm going to come out of service. I'm going to park myself over here on the lounge chair, right? Because I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. So really, though you didn't raise your hand, I know you're out there. I'm going to speak to you now, okay? Now I'm going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, 19. You will need your Bible for this part. 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to tell you now the story of Elijah. Elijah was a prophet. This is, by the way, what Pastor R calls the case study of the pooped prophet. <laughs> Elijah was a prophet living in the ninth century in the time of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. You can think about King Ahab as being old king compromise. He was worried about the strength of the powerful nations around him, so he made an alliance with Sihon, and the daughter of the king of Sihon, his, her name was... Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sion. With Jezebel came pagan religion of Baal worship. Baal was the god of fire and the god of rain. They believed that Baal brought the rains and fertility to the land. 
It wasn't long before King Ahab put up altars to Baal, probably to please his wife, and many Israelites began to worship the false god, and Jezebel had 450 false prophets. Elijah's very name proclaimed to the world who he was and whom he served. El, Elijah, El means creator, omnipotent God. Yah is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Elijah's name reminded Ahab and Jezebel of God's mighty power. So one day, Elijah went to Ahab and said, there will be no more rain in the land for the next few years except by my word. God was going to shut up the heavens and the Baal worshipers and everybody else is going to be dealing with the drought in the land. Now the people would see who's the most high God. You see, the people had compromised worshiping Baal, sacrificing at his altar, believing he would give them rain, and now there was no rain in the land. In the book of James, it says that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. I like that. It says Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah was a man of prayer. You know, there's great power in the prayers of God's people. And when God's people pray, God's power gets released. In this case, for three years, there was no rain in the land. Elijah learned how to rely upon God. There beside the brook Cherith, the ravens came and took care of him, bringing him bread every day. And then the, the brook dried up and the ravens stopped coming and Elijah went off to the widow's house and her jar did not run out of flour. God miraculously supplied what he needed. God took care of him. For three years, there was not a drop of rain in all of Israel. And then Elijah appeared again and summoned the nation of Israel, the prophets of Baal, to a contest at a place called Mount Carmel to determine who was the true and living God. And the contest went like this. The prophets of Baal set up their altar and they sacrificed a bull. And then they danced around the altar for several hours and they cut themselves and blood profusely came out of them. And Elijah began to mock these prophets of Baal saying like, is your God on vacation? <laughs> is he just taking a long nap? Maybe he's involved in a heavy project. So Elijah mocks the prophets of Baal. And then Elijah prayed to God. He, he, he prayed, Answer me, O God, that these people may know that I did this at your command, that you, O God, are Lord, that you are turning their hearts back again. And if you know the story, maybe you don't know the story, God answered his prayer and sent fire and it consumed the sacrifice and licked up the water from the trenches so that God did a mighty miracle that day on Mount Carmel. And then Elijah prayed seven times that it might rain. And there was this little cloud. And Elijah knew God had heard his prayer. And before the rain started to fall, Elijah ran down the mountain to King Ahab to tell him what happened. Now what Elijah thinks is going to happen is there's going to be a national revival. Ahab will have seen the hand of God and he will, have he will tell his wife about God's mighty power and Ahab and Jezebel would repent and then they would live happily um, forever after. But 
here's what happens in the story. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. You know, one of the things we try to assess is a credible threat. And Jezebel sat in a place of power, and she made a credible threat upon Elijah's life. This is a death threat. By tomorrow, you're going to be a dead man. Just as these prophets were wiped out, so Elijah, your life will be wiped out. She was the queen, and she could command the army. So the army could easily come and take this man's life. Now, I'd like to report to you that Elijah kind of manned up and said, you know what? God is my strength. God is my refuge. I'm not going to run. But this is what happened. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3. Elijah, with a nature just like you and I, was afraid. Fear began to grip his heart. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah. Now, remember that Elijah had run in front of Ahab's chariot some 20 miles. He must have been a phenomenal athlete that uh, filled with adrenaline, filled with the Spirit of God, here's this prophet running in front of the chariot. Now you say, why did he run when he could have taken a ride? Well, the kings, when they arrived, they always had a herald, right? So Elijah is taking on the position of being a herald. What he thinks is going to happen is that Ahab's going to tell his wife she's going to repent, it's all going to be well. He tells his wife she makes a death threat upon Elijah's life. So when he came to Beersheba, now Beersheba is about 90 miles from Jezreel. So he's gone 90 miles now. And he left his servant there while he himself won a day's journey. A minor detail in the story is that Elijah now is exhausted and fatigued, and he's all alone. He went a day's journey into the desert, and he came to a broom tree. Now, a broom tree is one of those low-hanging trees. It gives shade. He came to a broom tree, and he sat down under the tree, and he prayed something. What did he pray? He prayed that he might die. I am so done. I am so through with this prophet business. I want to turn in my prophet badge. (laughs) Or a mom may say, I just don't want to be a mom anymore. A leader may say, I just don't want to be a leader anymore. A pastor may say, I don't want to be a pastor anymore, right? I'm just so done. Now, Elijah knew that suicide was a sin. He knew he could not take his own life. So what he prayed was the Lord would take him home. He just had had enough. I don't know if you've ever felt like Elijah felt, but Elijah was completely depleted. He was exhausted. He was burned out. Couldn't take any more. Just wanted to quit. I just want to quit. I don't want to do this anymore. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. What I think is happening in the story is Elijah has come to the end of himself. 
he has come to the empty tank and there's nothing left. He does not have any resources inside of himself, no reserves to draw upon. He is absolutely done. There's just nothing to work with. And then at once an angel touched him. Here was a man who was touched by an angel. An angel came to him. Now, God did not love Elijah any less when he was a mighty prophet of God or he was a broken, exhausted, depleted man. God gave his spirit to strengthen him, but he also gave his angel to restore him. He said to Elijah, get up and eat. (laughs) You know, that may be a word you need to hear this morning. That God so wants to restore you. And when you are fatigued, when you are exhausted, when you are hungry, what you need to do is you need to eat. Right? You need to put something in your body that's good. And he looked around there and he saw by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coils, coals, and a jar of water. So Elijah is hungry there in the desert, underneath this tree, wanting to die, and God gives him some fresh, hot bread, baked over hot coals, and some refreshing water. Now, I've studied this text for a while, and I've come to the conclusion that the food that God gave him was angel food cake. (laughs) So what God did was he restore, he's restoring his soul. He's meeting him where he is. He's loving. How gentle and kind and generous is our God that he would meet this prophet where he is, he would meet you where you are to bring about the restoration of your soul. But that's not the end of the story. He looked around, there was a cake of bread baked on hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. He was exhausted. He needed to sleep. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, second time touched by an angel, touched him, said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. He was strengthened by the food and he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave. He found his man cave and there he spent the night. Now, what is going on with Elijah? First, what's going on is he had expectations about how life was supposed to work. He believed that when he did what he did on Mount Carmel, there would be a national revival. The people would repent. The false prophets would repent. The king and queen would repent. He had a list of uh, desires. And the desires turned into expectations. And the expectations turned into demands. And now he's very disappointed. You go off to school, right? And you think it's going to be a certain way, but it's different than you expected it to be. You get into marriage and you say, well, this is going to be easy. (laughs) 
or you go on vacation, right? And it's going to be just um, smooth sailing and something happens. Elijah's depression was the result of a perfect storm of the convergence of several factors. The first factor was unrealistic expectations. That's why he said, I've had enough. This is the last straw. I can't take any more. You see, you can have good and legitimate desires, but be careful when those desires turn into expectations and become demands, because then you're going to fall prey to unrealistic expectations. Truth is, marriage is hard. And truth is, vacations don't always turn out like you expected. And relationships sometimes take turns. The second big factor in Elijah's life is that of physical and emotional exhaustion. Exhaustion. He is whooped. If you are whooped, you probably need some physical vigorous exercise and sleep. You don't need six cups of coffee. Your physical self is connected to your emotional self. You are body, soul, and spirit. If you are physically exhausted, you don't have emotional reserves to draw upon. We, we tend to run out of gas in life because we overdo it. I just wonder, it, wonder if you're overdoing it. In the name of serving God, we function on little sleep, inadequate rest or exercise, recreation, poor nutrition. And we wonder why, when we face a disappointment, it hurls us into despair and depression. Scheduling adequate sleep, relaxation, is not a sinful luxury. It is a stewardship, stewardship responsibility. In order to be a long-term servant, a sustainable servant, you're going to need to take breaks to give yourself breathers, to set boundaries. Number three. The third part about Elijah falling apart was he became relationally isolated. He cut himself off from people. Remember, it's a small detail, but he left his servant there. He went on alone. He isolated himself under the broom tree and then the cave. The worst thing you can do if you're emotionally, spiritually exhausted is to cut people off. You need connection. You need community. See, the path to healing for you is to be connected to people who deeply love, about, deeply love you, who can hear from you, I'm alone, I'm afraid, I'm a mess, I need some help. I mean, it's just good to rehearse that, to say I'm a mess, because that's true. Fourth factor is Elijah felt self-pity. I'm the only one left, he said. I'm the only prophet. I'm the only one who's really committed around here. I'm the only one who cares about the cause. It's all up to me, and i got to bear this weight alone. The truth is that God had 7,000 prophets. There was a large remnant of people available to do his work. But Elijah felt so very all alone. So let me give you now the listen parts. Three listens. Listen to your body. <laughs> you are a human being with limitations. And when you serve, you have to know what those limitations are, right? If I put a gauge on you this morning, 
where would your gauge be? Full, half, or empty, or somewhere in between? I was uh, talking to somebody. I was talking to somebody. It was a Sunday night, not long ago, about two weeks ago, and I asked him a question. And I literally was falling asleep hearing the answer to his question. He said, Pastor R, you need to go to bed. I had this friend of mine, his name is Jeremy. I said, Jeremy, and I was telling him the story. He said, Pastor R, I love you very much, but that bed is calling my name real hard. If you're falling asleep at work or at the wheel, you need to pay attention to your body. Your body is not a minor prophet. Your body is a major prophet, and your body is always speaking to you. Your body has needs to eat and drink, to exercise, to decompress, to rest. Become aware of yourself, right? Because you only get one body to live in. Secondly, listen to your soul. Your thoughts will always govern your feelings. What am I thinking at this very moment? Elijah took his eyes off the Lord, and guess who he put his eyes on? Jezebel. Listen to me. When you put your eyes on Jezebel, (laughs) nothing good can come of that. Elijah took his eyes off God and put his eyes on this woman, and the fear of man is a snare. And then he isolated himself. He put himself, you know, out there in the desert beside the cave. And God said this question to Elijah. He said, Elijah, what are you doing here? What would God would have said that question to you? What are you doing here? What are you doing in this place? He had a wrong belief. His belief was the people had broken covenant, they tore down the altars, and he alone was left. He was weary, spent, angry, frustrated, disappointment, disappointed, feeling alone and abandoned. But here's the last one I want you to catch, okay? Listen to the still, small voice he will meet you in that place. There beside Horeb, Mount Sinai, he came to the edge of the cave, and there was an earthquake, but God was not in the earthquake. And there was a strong, mighty wind that tore the rocks apart, but God was not in the wind. And then there was a fire, and God was not in the fire either. See, God wasn't going to bring destruction upon the nation. But then there was the small, gentle whisper, and God spoke into his soul. And this is what he said. Elijah, I have some work for you to do. I've got a king for you to anoint. I've got your successor for you to lay your mantle upon. They're going to take care of business, Elijah. You're not alone. (laughs) You have to listen to the voice of God and what he wants to say to you in your state. He wants to lift you. He wants to restore you. He wants to replenish you. God wants to speak into your life. Pray with me. Father in heaven, what a powerful story you've given us of Elijah and the healing of his soul. And how, Lord, you want us to be servants, but how so often as servants we become depleted and exhausted. We're so thankful for summer and the summer that's ahead of us. But some here are carrying very heavy responsibilities, checking their email first thing, last thing, depriving themselves of sleep, carrying on with appointments and travel and commuting. Father, in all this chaos that's around us, all these situations we find ourselves involved with, 
Could we just, Father, still ourselves to hear the gentle whisper of the Spirit. Say to us that you are my child, and I love you very, very much. And I've given you gifts, but I want you to steward them well. I want you to set good boundaries. I want you to set limits. I want you to learn to say no. I want your soul to become refreshed, that when the opportunity comes, you'll be ready. God, thank you. You did not leave Elijah alone. You raised him up. So, Father, when you send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, help us to hear his voice. God, this is our prayer, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, if you want to stay where you are, you can. You can stand. There's a place here to pray. There's a cross to come to. We'll linger for a little while to pray with you. If you wish to pray, we're going to sing in our last song about the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with us, please?